Welcome to The Mentor List, a source of sound advice with your host, David Lewis. To seek support and you need to allow yourself to be supported. Really have a point of difference. What is precious, what's really important, and then putting some boundaries there. The Mentor List specialises in interviews with top business minds. Gather their advice for your career. This is The Mentor List. Hi, welcome to today's show. Today we're having a chat with Nicholas Stone. Now, Nick is a native of Melbourne, Australia, who moved to New York City in 2010. He's the founder and CEO of Bluestone Lane, an Australian influence lifestyle and hospitality brand based in New York. Nick envisaged Bluestone Lane whilst attending business school in New York with the idea of providing a premium coffee cafe experience that is readily found in his former hometown here in Melbourne. Since opening its first location in 2013, Bluestone Lane has become the fastest growing premium coffee and cafe brand in New York City, having opened 22 locations in a flagship coffee roastery and production facility within its first four and a half years of operations. So Nick joined Bluestone Lane as its full-time CEO in June 2016, having spent 10 years as a corporate finance director with ANZ and UBS advising and financing some of the world's largest multinational corps in US, Europe and the Asia Pacifics. Prior to banking, Nick was a professional football player, AFL football player for six seasons, having been selected in 1999 AFL National Draft from Wesley College. He played for Collingwood, Hawthorne and the St Kilda Football Clubs. Bluestone Lane is set to have more than 40 locations by the end of 2018 across six United States core markets, including New York, Philadelphia, New Jersey, Washington, San Fran, and LA. So very lucky to catch Nick in one of his quick trips home here to Melbourne. Hope you enjoy today's conversation with Nicholas Stone. Nick Stone, welcome to The Mentor List. Thank you. Thank you. Well, yeah, it's great to have you back in Melbourne. It's been wonderful coming back and actually spending a fair bit of time here in the last five months you know, in the lead up and uh, post the birth of uh, our first child, Arabella, yep. who's 11 weeks today or 11 weeks yesterday, actually. And it's been wonderful and reconnecting with Melbourne. You know, this is the longest time I've, I've spent here since I moved in 2010, September 2010. So, it's been it's been wonderful and it's just such an incredible city and I think sometimes when you step out and live live away you, you start to appreciate how good the quality of life is and, and how sophisticated the city is and, and diverse and the outdoors it's just truly wonderful quality of coffee too yeah the quality of coffee absolutely <laughs> and uh, I guess that's why we're here the, the, the quality of coffee the consistency of that Melbourne coffee experience is without peer it is the Silicon Valley of this super premium specialty experiential coffee and cafe sort of wave that's that's uh, beginning to uh, permeate throughout the US and you know it's really at the start but but this is where the the wave I think is is without a doubt anchored and it's the most progressive I believe in Melbourne of, of any city globally and it's uh, pretty exciting to be able to export that culture and start to grow it in the US. Yeah, so, so just for the listeners that maybe haven't heard of you uh, or heard of Nick Stone or haven't seen you in recent press, I certainly have. You've been uh, very busy. <laughs> so, yeah, maybe if you, mon- just, <laughs> if you could just tell the listeners a little bit about yourself and a bit about your story. Sure. Uh, well, Nicholas Stone, 36 years of age, uh, born in Melbourne, Australia, and grew up in Brighton, actually, and uh, with one brother, sibling, younger brother, Andrew. And uh, I was very fortunate. I went to a local primary school, then I went to Wesley College in Pran, which was an amazing school. I actually, my first career was I got drafted into the AFL in my year 12 year. Um, that sort of kicked off my, my first career, which was a childhood dream, and I always wanted to to play AFL football, but I had very balanced perspective parents who ensured that I remained focused on my studies and other things in life. So I played in, played a bit of music. I uh, definitely loved multiple different sports and uh, I had a real passion for learning. 
Yeah, so it was a good balance, but I got drafted in year 12. I took Collingwood. Uh, I was 17. I, I was there for two years and I had a pretty bad injury in my second year and uh, they ended up sort of being traded or selected again in the draft by Hawthorne and I, I was at the Hawks for two years. We were at Glenferry Oval. This is before Waverley and when I was at Collingwood, I was actually at Victoria Park as well. Wow. <laughs> and that's right, every every team I played at uh, was with their old decrepit facilities yeah. and then as soon as I went, they, they upgraded to something flash. <laughs> so it was either me or, or, or the clubs. And uh, I played 17 games at Hawthorne across those two years and, and started to find my feet. I ended up... At the end of the second year, I was a bit surprised I wasn't recontracted because I was, I was sort of 21 years of age and, and being a tall uh, key position prospect, you sort of start to, to play well around that age with a bit more maturity. And then I ended up going to St Kilda and I probably had my two best years, but I could never get in the seniors. The team was very strong and there was a lot of competition and the positions that I played in. I was there for two years, and but actually what was fortunate was during that time I studied at Monash Uni and uh, I did my uh, business banking finance degree. The day I effectively had my final degree, uh, final exam, sorry, I was delisted the following day and I had an internship lined up with UBS uh, through uh, my uncle. And uh, that sort of started my banking career and, and I had an opportunity to, to try again to stay in the AFL because I was only 23, I was just about to turn 24. So it's funny how a whole career, six years, yeah, is finished wow. at a young age. But uh, I persisted with banking and, and I ended up uh, uh, really enjoying it and really enjoying not being an AFL footballer anymore because I, I guess I never felt comfortable in the system to a degree because I think I was always lacked self-belief and confidence and uh, I guess I'd never I would always play so well in the VFL and, and I did well when I was at St Kilda I sort of finished in the in the top couple of best and fairest for, for two years and then I played for the VFL team versus the Waffle and sort of had a really great VFL career but I just couldn't uh I guess I just didn't have enough opportunities at the AFL level to really um, solidify myself. So it was great to go into another career where I took all those transferable skills and they are quite incredible. At such a young age, you, you're quite impressionable, you're, you're malleable. But to deal with adversity, deal with pressure, to deal with scrutiny, high performance standards, to deal with uh, expectation, to deal with macellation and focus... It was quite incredible to try and take all that, that learnings and then start applying it into a new career. And I guess when I started banking, I was a bit fearless. I just knew that I'm going to be the best here. I'm not going to let anything limit me. And I'd learned a lot from the disappointments with AFL and not reaching what my goals that I had and probably not never feeling, fulfilling my potential because I'd had enough years in the system, six years, to probably had enough three clubs view that I was a good enough potential player to be to have a, a good career in the AFL, but it just never eventuated. You know, I finished with 20 games, but, you know, it was great to move into banking and then I started to really um, light up my fascination with companies and understanding their value propositions and how they build brands and these sort of things. So what, so what are you doing sort of at UBS? Are you in a specific area, you're trading or you're... Yeah, I started in research um, sales actually and I was basically like a desk assistant learning from the bottom. At the end of the internship, because I didn't have to go back to pre-season, I ended up staying on and I guess I was just sort of started learning about the um, mechanics of banking and trading, investment banking and and also wealth management and it was, it was a fascinating time because I guess UBS... Uh, this is in 2005 and six was the preeminent investment bank in Australia. You know, it was really only Macquarie and UBS. Golan weren't weren't they were in the top three, but there was a fair gap between the top two. I ended up applying uh, for grad positions uh, because UBS there was a good opportunity to move into their wealth management business to work with a particular advisor who got a lot of referrals from the investment bank. But I was fascinated with being an advisor and understanding and um, companies and, and having a real analytical focus. 
So I applied for a number of different grad programs because I, I sort of thought UBS is just going to push me into wealth management. I got a couple of offers, but the first one came very early and it was from ANZ. The, anyway, the offer was in the institutional business and it was in, within a new team, a corporate finance team called uh, Client Insights. And it was set up by the head of institutional banking to basically be uh, an investment banking function within a commercial bank. I moved, well, I was sort of spending a bit of time in Sydney, but then this job was in Melbourne, which was great because I wanted to be back with my family and friends and, and play footy for my old school team. And it was just incredible. I had some of the best mentorship and bosses for for a number of years uh, until, and I had a number of opportunities to work across different fields from, I worked a bit in the ANZ Capital business, which was their private equity business and, and leverage finance, I worked in structured finance, I worked with stuff in working capital and, and I, then I did some time in uh, mergers and acquisitions on both debt advisory and, and on uh, M&A advisory with the team there and it was really broad experience and I was still a you know, junior, I was an analyst and associate. But uh, in 2008, I really had this hunger to try and go overseas and work and I particularly wanted to work in New York. I had a fascination with the New York brand and, and how it's the epicenter of commerce and fashion and art and it's probably the most aspirational city. And I, I think particularly Australians, they, they see New York as the bright lights and the place to be and it's got such incredible subculture from movies and, and music and that sort of thing. I was trying to get in the trying to get a transfer to our New York office, and I went across in 2008, an interview in New York, then an interview in London, by who ended up being my boss in New York, uh, this guy called Doug Stolberg, Stolberg in London, and he basically said, "Listen, we don't need a quasi, you know, M and A banker over here. You're best to stay home." So I came back, and at that time, oh, so you're flying over just for the interview, or yeah, but so, my. Girlfriend, now wife, Alexandra, she, I'd met her in 2006 at Derby Day actually and we just met briefly and then we met again down at the beach and we sort of started getting, seeing each other on New Year's Eve 2007. So uh, we were going out and she had this, she wanted to, to explore overseas and she was studying osteopathic medicine and she wanted to take a gap year and actually model overseas so when we met she was just about to go so she deferred and then ended up going in 2007 and worked in London then she came back and we spent a fair bit of time together and then in 2008 I really wanted to go overseas and during that trip when I had the interview she actually met with a few agencies so I had the interview in New York, London then we travelled around uh, Europe for a little bit then came home and she got a letter in the mail that she got offered a three-year contract with Ford Models wow. and uh, Visa. And I was told, no, there's no jobs here, Nick. <laughs> so I then had to find a way to, to get overseas and rendezvous with her and then keep that the dream burning about or the candle burning for the dream of, of working in New York. So what I decided to do is I continued to study. I had a real thirst for knowledge and understanding, particularly corporate finance and and uh, companies and how to structure and and the financial engineering and mechanics behind them and so I did a master's of finance and then I ended up um, consulting with my mentor this guy called Michael Pimley who's based in Princeton he's probably the preeminent sort of finance consultant globally and he he does a lot of work for the Australian banks and he said listen I don't think it's a good idea for you to just to resign to go over the, to New York and chance your arm because obviously this is in the heart of the financial crisis right the GFC that we know and just leaving banking and going in and studying an MBA overseas it just seemed a bit sort of foolish because my career was going really well and I was leveraging those transferable skills in banking here so I decided to do an MBA at Melbourne Business School to try and exchange and spend time in New York. So I thought that would be the catalyst to get me across. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in some ways it'd probably force ANZ's hand to make it, at least make a decision on me. Or I'd finish my exchange there and I'd be able to meet with all the banks and I'm probably yeah. anchored and ready to go. So I started that. I went straight from the fi- uh, Master of Finance into MBA and, and I really just... I probably worked as hard as I've ever worked in my life. I was, I was working in M&A, uh, which is big hours. I was doing three-quarter time, three time MBA, so yeah, three exactly. subjects. 
and I was playing football at Collegians in, in the A-grade amateurs and we had a pretty good team so you know we, I was taking that quite seriously and my girlfriend was overseas so it was just juggling and, and a, a tremendous amount of sacrifice and just just a pretty stressful period but I found out in 2009 after cramming as many subjects as I could to get the 50% threshold to exchange that my exchange, I was successful with an exchange, but it was to Copenhagen Business School. So I was dealt that blow and I found out when I was actually at a friend's from school's wedding in San Francisco and my Alex had flown in, met me there and I had to break her the news that day that I found out I wasn't exchanged to New York, exchanged to Copenhagen and sure enough, I ended up going to a few business schools and there was one school that I'd never heard of that it sounded like a really unique opportunity to get in and it was Fordham Business School. It's actually pretty well known in, in the States. Uh, there's a few presidents have been there, including the, the sitting president oh, at the moment. But okay. uh, yeah, so anyway, it was fantastic opportunity to to study their executive program in venture capital and luckily i had a master's degree which was a prerequisite to get in and they had some interesting things like the pass rate the hurdle rate was 75 percent. so it really meant that you had to be really committed yeah yeah so i went across in 2010 and uh, started studying at fordham and it was fantastic it was the first time in my life that i hadn't had a job since 17 you know I, I just sounds good yeah I, and, and I was there at um, you know it was in, in 2010 so I was 29 years of age 28 years of age it was just wonderful to be in New York as a full-time student and to have a few dollars saved in the bank so you could actually do things and to have my uh, girlfriend who's having a lot of success with her modeling and she continued to study she ended up doing biomedical science and nutrition was just incredible and but you know what was what was so profound when I was studying over there in in my uh, executive sort of program in VC was I, I had to work on a, a thesis to work on a business idea and I ended up deciding my business idea should be on something that I had absolutely zero experience in and that was hospitality now everyone in my class was focused on tech primarily because Groupon and Living Social had just IPO'd that year it was for flash site rage it was just money was pouring into tech and it just seemed apps were still new this is 2010 like the prevalence of apps was still immature relative to you know the world we're in now but I just could not believe how different the coffee experience was. It, in fact, wasn't experience at all. It was just transactional, commoditized. And it was really uh, people who would get would obtain coffee, the rawest form of the product, purely for a caffeine hit. These places existed like drug dispensaries. There was nothing magical. There was nothing special. There was certainly no one who knew my name, face, or order. There was, I didn't feel like a local. I felt like a, a, a just a homogenized person uh, and a misspelt name on a cup. And there was no healthy food. The uh, aesthetics was, was really bland and not inviting. It didn't feel like an escape, an oasis. And uh, I didn't get that sense of belonging, community and ego boost that I used to get every day at my local. So a local here, you walk in, they know you. Like what a wonderful feeling every day. You could be down in the dumps and someone walks in and says, hey, Nick, how are you? You know, how's your footy team going? Just that interpersonal relationship made a really big difference, particularly when I worked in banking. So you obviously had that here and then you've gone over to New York and you've you've sort of had an expectation that's not really being served and that's exactly right so it was it was so contrasting and then what I decided to do was I was just perplexed by it because the consumption of coffee was so high oh, they love it it's they amazing love it. it's, it's incredible but but the experience was so ordinary and so inconsistent so I started to study their coffee culture and how it came about and one of the things that I learned and it only took me a few months to discover that Starbucks is actually the greatest hospitality company the world's ever known. In Australia, we have a very myopic lens. I think we have a very biased lens. That, uh, and it's a great thing that we're very patriotic about our coffee culture, and and a lot of people have the you know torches and uh, pickets tell us love to proclaim that we ran Starbucks out of town. Starbucks failed here, and they do it with joy and glee and a lot of passion. And I think that's terrific. But the reality is, Starbucks failed in Australia 
because we've got an aversions to chains. It's much more independent driven model. But it's the only OECD economy where Starbucks has failed. And most importantly, in the big, biggest consumer animal in the world until China takes it over, the, the, the US, they not only introduced espresso beverages and commercialized it to, to an incredible level, but they also introduced the concept of the third space and, and obtaining coffee outside the office and home where coffee was really only consumed in those two channels. And in 2011, when Starbucks market cap just was below 100 billion US, this is this is as big as Commonwealth Bank. It was only 30. It, it's it's 30 years old this year. It launched in 87. 25,000 uh, units globally. It's the most human capital intensive company, I think, in the world. It will never be replicated again because of technology. You would never. It's unlikely you'd ever employ that many people again, right? But it's just absolutely incredible. But what had happened is Starbucks had commercialized espresso and introduced it to all these young people, particularly these this millennial demographic, that are used to now going to the third space for coffee. They're used to drinking espresso beverages. But after consuming it for the past 15 years, they're ready for something better. They're ready for something more aspirational. They're ready for a more artisan approach. They're ready for more healthy complementary food and uh, less processed and, and cleaner. And they're, they're really focused on having personal elements and connection. They care about the aesthetic and they care most importantly about the service and the community. And that's what I missed. So I started breaking down the business model from then. And, uh, you know, I spent a tremendous amount of time studying Starbucks, a tremendous amount of time on critiquing our value proposition. I do it every day relentlessly and very, very objectively because I had no experience and I had no rules that I knew about. It, it was all open fair and there was no sacred cow where I couldn't make a decision or touch it if it didn't make sense didn't seem logical didn't seem good for the local didn't seem great for the brand was economically irrational then i would challenge the mold that's what we've been really successful in doing and combined that was this focus on two clear things to begin with the first one wasn't building a brand and building a brand is just so important because it gives you so much more flexibility you don't have to be known as a coffee company you can be known just as a brand a lifestyle brand and that's what i thought the australian lifestyle movement it was the envy of the world this focus towards outdoor living balanced living wellness clean eating australia is really at the at the epicenter of that movement and secondly i really wanted to focus on developing a, a true emotional connection with our local where we're much more focused on human connection rather than a product-led yep. company. And then you know, ultimately, if you build a brand and it's validated in New York City, which is the biggest brand of all time, New York's bigger than Apple or Nike, then there's a really great chance that you can scale. And uh, that was paramount in my mind. If we were the best in New York, then sort of by virtue, we're going to be world-class and we're going to be able to probably scale in a number of different markets. It's, it's obviously the anchor product's pretty incredible. You know, with its, and if, in, a couple of years ago, I went to Berkshire Hathaway's AGM to listen to the, uh, the Oracle of Omaha and Charlie. And it was one of, the, one of the best sort of days of my business career. But um, there was a moment there where Warren was, they do this Q&A for like six hours. It's absolutely unbelievable. You've got to be a, a stockholder to go to Yeah, to go. Yeah. Two guys I worked with had, had shares, so yeah. they were able to bring guests. So we went right. as a, a little a trip to Omaha. It was, it was sensational. It's in this stadium you know, that seats 60,000 people and there's just a, just a table. And on a stage and they just sit there and they eat, they drink Diet Coke and, and eat peanut brittle by C's Candy with yeah. two businesses that they, they, you know, they're very large shareholders in. And <laughs> anyway, Warren was asked this question um, during that six or seven hour question time and he said, do you think it's immoral that you own 10% of Coca-Cola given uh, obesity-related illness and, and, you know, cost to society and externalities and... And Warren said, um, and what do you think about the sugar tax? And Warren said, listen, I, I think it's, you know, you're getting on your high horse saying that it's immoral. Like we're not forcing anyone to drink Coca-Cola. It's, it's not illegal and it doesn't kill you. Eating too, many, too much sugar and fat, yeah, that'll kill you. But having one Coca-Cola in moderation, I think that's fine. It's up to everyone's choice. But he said, like, I never invested 
in the greatest investment opportunity of all time for morality reasons and you've literally got 40 to 60,000 people silent waiting for the the, uh, the oracle to tell you the best investment of all time and he said the best investment of all time was cigarette companies mm. and I never invested in cigarette companies and everyone's like oh wow and he goes well the best the reason why they're so good is these four properties the first one is uh, addictive in nature the second one is tremendous brand loyalty the third one is incredible gross profit margins. And the fourth one is low capital intensity. And it was at that moment I really started to think, wow, coffee has a lot of similarities like this. If you apply a very, very disciplined cost structure, you focus on brand, you're very judicious in how you allocate capital. There's, there's a lot of similarities. Now, obviously, we, coffee's not a carcinogen. It's been proven by the World Health Authority this year and uh, it's actually good for you. Obviously, excessive consumption of anything is not good and coffee would be in that basket. But coffee has a lot of those characteristics, addictive in nature and tremendous brand loyalty. Look at, look at Starbucks. So how, how do we timestamp this? So we've, we've kind of gone from Fordham where we're doing the thesis. Yeah. Now we're at Berkshire Hathaway and is, is it still a concept? I mean, and at some point we've got 20, is it 20 plus stores? I yeah, just- yeah, 20, 23 stores at, um, right now. So you're exactly right. So when I finished Fordham, where I was really kicking around this idea, I went straight back, I, I began my job in, with ANZ to rebuild the corporate finance function, both in New York and in London. And that began in February 2011. And I had an amazing boss. I had a number of bosses that were so supportive and believers in in me. And and they've all been investors in Bluestone, actually, which, oh, is, right. which has been pretty <laughs> incredible. In that year, I was working just back and forward. I was two weeks in New York, two weeks in London. And I just really didn't have any mental sort of capacity to do anything on the coffee side and I was just still trying to get used to living in the city and dealing with all the the craziness of New York and and with my girlfriend that sort of thing um, my wife and then in 2012 I just couldn't believe that I was still going to work every day looking for my coffee break and it was just it was so um, inconsistent so it's just it was sort of like the catalyst like that the good coffee shops were in destination areas that you could really only go to on the weekend and then during the during the week where people spend the majority of their time which is in New York like and the reality of New York is when you live in New York you spend the majority of your time working everyone does the same thing New York is not an easy place to live it's not a great lifestyle it's the best city in the world hands down it has the most world class opportunities on your on your and events on your doorstep but it's has a relentless work ethic it's truly the world's global city and what I found was that every day where I needed that twice a day escape that I had in Melbourne, I couldn't find. So it was sort of compelled me out of self necessity because I missed it so much from home that morning and afternoon break and on the weekend, you know, doing some sport or make, going for a run and then having breakfast or brunch with my wife where it's, you know, a latte and a glass, a flat white and a, and a, and a ceramic porcelain mug and then, you know, avocado on toast, two poached eggs, you know. You know roasted tomato and, and some mushrooms and maybe chair pudding or something like that. I just couldn't find it. It wasn't commonly available. So I decided, okay, I'm going to put this together. I ended up um, starting to really focus on it the, at the mid-2012 and I brought in a couple of uh, people to help me because I knew that I wasn't a hospitality expert but I was very, very good at understanding how companies succeed and sustain and their value propositions and I had a pretty good understanding of brands and and my housemate who actually went to Melbourne Business School and did his MBA there was a bit of a, a genius at brand management and he gave me a lot of tips about creating the authenticity of the brand and the story the narrative and that helped me a lot really understand so when I when I started Bluestone, I knew clearly in my mind what it's going to stand for, what are our values, how it's going to feel to a local. So we launched our first store eventually in July 2013 after a number of months, nine months of maybe even longer, 12 months of looking for sites. Yeah. And we launched our first one in the subterranean basement in Midtown Manhattan on 50th and 3rd Avenue. No street visibility, no signage, 
no sandwich board out the front, nothing. Wow. It was impossible to know it's there unless someone took you there and it was driven by word of mouth, which was a really deliberate strategy because we thought if we've got a lead with pull marketing, right, pull strategy where it's through authentic word of mouth engagement, we've got to make sure our digital channels are solid and social, but everything's going to be about leading with the experience and if they have a good time, they're going to bring their friends and come back again. And that's what happened with that store. It's tiny. It was like 25 square meters. We amenitized it. So, we, we positioned it to the landlord that it was all about adding a new amenity that was relevant for millennials, which is a tremendous headwind facing office building owners because they're faced with this issue of flexible working, digitization, a lifestyle demands from different tenants. So we saw we saw ourselves as an ability to to help fill vacancies and and improve their proposition to retain tenants. So I had a partner. I brought on a partner uh, to oversee the real estate because we were looking for small sites. And to be honest, like the the broker leasing model in the US is asymmetrical. It's a complete conflict of interest. The landlord pays your broker's fee. So clearly there's incentive for you to take a really big space to pay a lot of rent because it means the commission's higher. And that that asymmetry is absolutely absurd. And I constantly kept meeting these brokers that wanted to put us in big spaces. They weren't listening to me. They they had their own selfish sort of view and, you know, they're – you know, being a broker is, is just, it's like a salesman, right? It's a bit of a churn, churn and burn model. But I had a partner who came in who was more focused on, on small sites because we, I came up with a structure to provide an equity incentive and bring him on as a partner. We opened our second store shortly after in October 2013. Again, they were both coffee shops and then what we decided is we really needed to grow the brand and provide a more a broader proposition, broader menu, more akin to a classic Melbourne cafe. And that was our third location, which we launched in July 2014. And that was on the corner of Perry Street and Greenwich Avenue in the heart of West Village. And uh, we, we selected that site because we knew that if we don't attract a lot of American locals, we know it's cl- very close to the tourist walking walking tour for for Aussies who stroll down Bleecker Street or, and then go down Perry Street because Carrie Bradshaw from Sex and the City, you know, her apartment was on Perry Street and uh, uh, no, the, ta- the townhouse she emerged from, you know, that's where she was meant to be live and that's around the corner and that really just blew the brand up in such a huge way, uh, put us on the map and then, you know, the next thing, all the celebrities are walking in and all the Victoria's Secret models are there and, you know, it's been such a catalyst for us to grow the brand and grow the awareness. And just speaking about the brand, so Bluestone Lane, obviously pretty solid tiebacks to Melbourne. We're sort of talking about this offline. Do you want to just sort of explain the, the logo and, the, you know, the deep sort of ties back to Melbourne? Yeah, well, everything's meant to be as authentic as possible. So, Bluestone Lane, it's one word, Bluestone, and the Americans think it's to do with my surname. It's just yeah, sort of convenient, but Bluestone, one, one word, because of the intricate little Bluestone laneways, those secretive laneways that the British often introduce to all the central business districts, and uh, what I loved about that was so many great hole-in-the-wall coffee shops, the ones that I would go to, ones where I feel like a local, um, working on the corner of um, you know, Queen, and, Queen and Collins Street and prior to that on, on King and Collins Street, would be found. So it was really a, back, um, a throwback to where the brand is influenced by and where it comes from, which is Melbourne, Australia, even though that we've, we've never launched it. We, we don't have any stores in Australia and, we, and we're, we're a New York-based company. And then the logo, the logo was really about trying to ensure that the, the consumer understood that we were a sophisticated brand, that we were an artisan brand, we weren't Crocodile Dundee in the US. Because you still get that, don't you? Uh, yeah. yeah. Well, particularly in hospitality because there's a lot of Australian proprietorships which are sort of like the Aussie pub in these different cities where it plays footy and it's all about palmas and beers, which is, which is great. Like, I think there's a, there's a perfect place for that. But you know, what we're offering is more refined and more sophisticated and there's also Outback Steakhouse, which is this 
concept and it has this guy with this really strong Australian accent talking about eating the best beef down under and I just thought I've got to move away from this like our society is is very interesting and multicultural artistic and cosmopolitan so I want to I want to be sophisticated and so the logo very much resembles a, a a more regal Victorian feel. So we took the, the crown on the Victorian state flag and we basically affixed it above a star, which starts to look like the Victorian police badge. And the star is in reference to obviously the Southern Cross, but also the Stars and Stripes. And yeah, suddenly it started to really personify what we're about. And, you know, when people ask me, like, talk to me about the logo, talk to me about the name, well... It's, it's directly correlated to, to Melbourne because I think that's such a big point of difference for us that we are the leading Australian coffee export in the US and hopefully we'll be the leading hospitality export because we don't want to do anything that's inconsistent with what you commonly find in Melbourne. We obviously change and refine the business model so it's more suited to the US market, but our value proposition and the food and the coffee proposition and the service proposition, most importantly, is is directly tied and consistent with what you'd expect to find in, in Melbourne or, or any of the major markets in Australia. Fantastic. So... Yeah, going from, um, I guess, three stores, what, five, six years ago to 23, <laughs> taking another 20. I mean, what, what advice would you have for someone that's that's been through it? Yeah, well, well we, we've done it all really in four and a half years. We've grown very quickly in the last uh, 18 months because I actually didn't go full time. as I was always chief exec, founder and chief executive, but I, I didn't go full time until we effectively had we're heading into our 13th store, which was in June 2016. Wow. So you're working at the bank, well, crossing between London, New York, plus you've got 13 stores, which you're managing, my God. Yeah, well, I ended up um, giving up London and, and uh, pointing someone there. So I was just focused in New York, but irrespective, I had a lot of work. I was, I was going to Asia and I was on a, a number of leadership teams. I was on the, the regional leadership team. I was on the New York office leadership team. I was on my function um, leadership team so there was a lot of other things and and I was I was a young director I was probably one of you know if not the youngest one of the youngest in ANZ so of I think ANZ's got 40,000 employees or maybe 50,000 and I was a director at 29 so I had a lot going on with banking and it was it was good the, the career ahead of me I think was fantastic you know yep. it was a great trajectory and very comfortable in, um Wage and you know all those sort of things were nice. What was the catalyst or the tipping point where you're? Well, I think it got to, to sort of like twelve stores, and I just thought, wow, this is I'm getting more enjoyment from being a CEO, working across so many different business principles, not just financial structuring. I love the intrinsic reward. I loved working with people. I love the notion of hospitality, where you serve people and you can make a difference to their day. Like it's very tangible in banking. It's so intangible. You don't. You're often not the one that hires people or or make. If you if you advise a company to sell off a division and there's redundancies, you're not the one who has to go and tell those people. And I think that tangibility um, is really really important if you want to be a successful business leader. And I just started to get a lot of enjoyment from it. I loved being building something that's really really addictive because you get those incremental gains every day. Uh, and I think that the the opportunity to, to create something incredibly special was right there. And I think we'd proven the concept over those couple of years, three years. We faced the opportunity to grow rapidly. There was a lot of interested parties asking about investing in the business and yep. growing it. And there'd been a lot of transactions in our space. So most of our competitors have actually been acquired. They've been acquired over the last two years because there was a massive uh, consumer roll-up driven by a German family office that's that spent about $30 billion in the last three years buying everyone. Yep. You know, I constantly looked at the moat between specialty boutique operations versus Starbucks and the moat was so big and even now like the second biggest coffee player globally is Duncan Brands which is a five billion dollar market cap and Starbucks market cap today I think is 86 billion so it's just incredible the difference yeah and I just thought this is it's got a really good chance and imagine building a business and leading a business and being that coach in the team where you can make a difference to people's lives and develop their careers and 
that's probably one of the most rewarding things I've ever had was taking people that were working in hospitality, they're passionate about coffee, that in America, coffee was sort of seen as a, a lower end of the hospitality value chain where fine dining is at the top and being maybe the best cocktail you know, waiter or waitress or, or bartender, it was the top of the tree. And I said, no, we've got to switch this because this is incredible. This artisan skill, this dexterity combined with a service proposition, if you do well here, you should be able to earn a great wage. You should be able to end up being an owner in the business. And the growth rate and the scalability is so great that you actually won't be running stores. You'll be running businesses. And uh, that's how I treat it. And that intrinsic reward has been incredibly exciting and and just being part of a, a really flat high performance and driven culture, which to be honest, that's what I started in in banking. But over the last few years, I think that that's slowly eroded and there's a number of reasons for that. Regulations, one, but also technology. And um, banks, the, the simple truth of banking is that the cost structure that banks runs with is, is completely unsustainable. Most banks globally generate a return on capital below the cost of equity, right? So it's they're actually destroying value by operating. And um, what happens is that when there was so much liquidity in such loose monetary policy that predated the financial crisis and even now that the, the capital abundance, like the unprecedented ways in which people have injected liquidity in the system but what it means is that a lot of people have been overpaid and they're very unproductive now given technology but they're hanging on to the edge they're never going to let go because redundancy or or the fact is the matter they can never be paid as well as they have been because there's just not that many careers that would reward the skill set that they have anymore they're not going to go out and start building algorithms and they're not probably going to be ceos of corporations because their their business experience is limited so what you find is a lot of young people rise up through banking and banking is incredible grounding because it teaches you a number of broad business skills but they hit a ceiling and then you know they're stuck and they're very frustrated and i found that to be honest in the end and versus the opportunity cost of doing my own thing so when i went full-time in june we just started to rapidly accelerate the business you know we've pretty much doubled the size of it in 18 months and then we're planning to double it again uh, over the next 12 months yeah i mean with with so much that you're sort of dealing um how do you sort of deal with the overwhelm or what sort of habits have you picked up that you can share that sort of helped you deal with i guess an increasing workload i know you've sort of dropped out of the full-time work but you kind of had this beast of a role already going as well yeah well i think it's even more busy now because as a founder and the CEO, you're never off the clock and hospitality, is a, it's all about incremental gains. You never have any of these like major structural advance, um, advances. It's all about ensuring that each day is getting better and you remain relentlessly focused on ensuring the local has a, a really great experience and they're satisfied every time they come in and it's successful. But you put out fires nonstop. You've just got major technical decisions you've got to make all the time. But um, building a brand is wonderful and it's incredibly exciting working with young people who are just so passionate about making a difference. But I guess my tips, certainly what I leveraged and what I still leverage today is I'm a very sort of analytical and studious person. So I spend a lot of time really objectively reviewing how the business is going I obviously spend a lot of time sort of on the numbers and then looking at what's going on in the industry and understand the broader thematic. But I really spend a credible amount of time analyzing and objectifying our value proposition. Are we really compelling? Why would a local come to us, not them? How do we remain relevant? How, what's our communication? What's the? How do we influence the locals so that they come back more frequently or spend more? How do we grow in different markets and manage that risk? How do we develop our team? Um, how do I recruit better? Every single day, how do we leverage technology? There's so much technology now in in the food sort of hospitality industry. It's quite incredible. It's just been an amazing an amazing experience. You know, I think the first one is yet yeah, pri- pri- certainly 
I've used a lot of research to support me. Um, the second one is certainly um, hiring a great team, right? So I'm all about empowerment and autonomy. That's the way I wanted to be led. So I'm all about ensuring that I recruit well, hire well, and give them the best chance to succeed in their role. So I, I, might, I take the approach of being a coach and helping them with the strategic initiatives and we've got a very simple decision making process we have three lenses and uh, it's is it good for the local is it good for the brand is it economically rational and i think that's brought a lot of transparency to the decision making process rather than like is there a minimum hurdle is there a yep. minimum return requirement or you know what does it what does it mean to be is it good for the local well i think people know objectively well if you were the local and you're sitting at the table and someone served you would you be happy with that type of interaction so i think being very pragmatic uh, has helped and and certainly and the key to that is hiring a great team and giving them the chance to succeed and i think i also take a lot of notes so everywhere i go i use evernote just like me on yeah don't use paper anymore (laughs) so i gave up my books a couple of years ago and i just try and record everything because what happens is you're so distracted and and you're working on so many things all the time i just try and put notes down to remind myself and evernote's been terrific for that for me and it's the way it syncs between my computer and my phone my ipad you know i think they're the the three key tips but you know you you need to it's a very challenging life as a uh, entrepreneur it can be very lonely it's not easy it's definitely not easy, but you've got to be up for challenges all the time because no matter how it appears from afar, it's often just so different inside. That's one thing I've learned that like you, you're constantly worried about the business failing. You're constantly worried about running out of money and not being relevant. You, you know, you're constantly worried about things going wrong and and really with bluestone it was all about protecting the downside i never started this thing thinking oh i'm going to build this and have a billion dollar brand it was really about um can i ensure that i don't like lose my reputation can i ensure that i don't lose my friend's money can i ensure that i don't lose my money and i think managing the downside has been a really prudent thing to to go in with rather than just oh, i'm going to blow this out but just thinking well how do i make sure that that nothing really goes too wrong yep. so no, That's great. Helped. Thanks for sharing. Yeah. Yeah. So you mentioned it is it potentially lonely or lonely at times. Is there anyone you sort of follow or draw on for inspiration? Yeah, certainly. Well, there's a guy who I read a lot about. We sort of follow him quite deeply. Is a guy called Reid Hoffman. He's sort of the preeminent VC investor, but he's also been an operator. And he was one of those PayPal from the PayPal guard with uh, Elon Musk and Peter Thiel. And he's incredible. And he talks a lot about living in beta. And living in beta is basically as an entrepreneur, everything's constantly going to be volatile. So if it's not volatile, then you're not growing fast enough and something's going to go wrong. So he just said, you just got to get comfortable with it. Things are going to go be crazy all the time. The other thing that he's a big, talks a lot about, and I can't quote him you know, verbatim, but he basically says that no one owns a good idea. So in his view, any idea doesn't matter. Everything's about execution. And I think that's a really, really interesting one because if you look at Bluestone Lane, I'm from a non-traditional background. I didn't have any hospitality experience. I didn't really have any reason or even the idea alone was was not that innovative. Certainly the way that we've created the brand and executed has been quite innovative, but that's certainly like the concept of fast following and tinkering a coffee shop rollout is not but it's a classic example i actually executed and and got together and got the team and went for it and that's a big point of difference but to jump in the deep end and to do execution really well i think you've got to revert back to a core principle which is or ensuring that you never ever lose your skill set whatever it is and with me i had a really good skill set and a very deep interest in understanding how companies grow and how they build their propositions and how brands develop heritage and authenticity i think that combined with people like branson phil knight obviously it's the best book i've read for you know last year was was shoe dog I, you know, I think, and then I've learned a lot from my sporting background and, and also banking. So, and obviously Buffett's had a big influence too. Um, he's, the way he pragmatically assesses 
opportunities and his humility that's a huge value in our company no ego and you know we we sort of do everything we can to support our team and the local and it, no no jobs too big or too too small for anyone in our team has held us in great stead and I'm very proud of the fact that we we don't have any pretentiousness or, or ego certainly we're confident but the way that we communicate and the way that we we deal in our daily interactions we you know we serve now between nine and ten thousand locals a day i just had a question out of curiosity it's the last time i was in the states i think my the coffee i ordered by accident was about half a liter i mean what sort of sized coffees are you guys um serving up in new york is it is it different to your your smaller cups in here in melbourne no, the same size, same size. Yeah, yep. it was just uh, something that I uh, had to had to ask. I just had sort of one last question. Um, you, you mentioned the Phil Knight book, which was also Tim Fung, the Airtasker founder's uh, favourite book. Also, oh, really? Yeah, so it's funny. I'm definitely going to have to pick that up over the um, Christmas period and have a read by the pool. Was that the book that you recommend or was there another one that you sort of think we should pick up and have a read? I think that one's terrific. Pouring Your Heart Into It's a very, very good book as well. It's by Howard Schultz and he wrote it after 10 years since he launched Starbucks. That was a fantastic book too. And I've also, you know, Losing My Virginity by Richard Branson's an amazing book too. Yeah. And yeah, I love autobiographies. I'm not a big fan of fiction. So yeah, that, that'd be the ones I'd recommend. But yeah, I think Shoe Dog's such an easy read. Everyone on our team read it. I think they got a lot from it. Yeah. yeah. No, fantastic. Thanks for sharing. Yeah, so just for those that are listening in and, well, maybe they're lucky enough to be in New York or travelling there soon, you know, how would they go about contacting you? You know, who should contact you? And Well, I think the best way to do it is via LinkedIn. So uh, Nicholas Stone, you could search Bluestone Lane, Nicholas Stone and find me. I think that's the, the best way. And, yeah, I'm happy to pass on some advice and tips and like things I see that are quite interesting I often re-share them on on LinkedIn and also update when I've we've done some if I've done an interview that's interesting or there's something relevant in the industry I share it so yeah it's been a great journey and pretty excited about the the next couple of years yeah, to come sounds like and so you're sort of relocating to another city and yeah relocating um, to LA so that'll begin in two weeks so yeah it'll be great new chapter yeah, well, indeed. yeah look forward to sort of watching you know the progress and hearing about yeah future success but yeah thanks for making the time and your trip short trip back here to Melbourne so I really appreciate it thank you so much half the listeners thanks so, Thanks Tune in again next week for another great show. Thank you. The Mentalist specialises in interviews with top business minds. Gather their advice for your career. This is The Mentalist.